0: Good evening, friends. How are we doing? Has anybody managed to burn themselves? I was really looking at Matt earlier when he came in. I thought he might be this glowing pink uh, mass, but he's managed to sun cream himself, so uh, well done. Um, It's good to be with you. My name's Chris. Um, I'm married to a lovely woman called Rebecca, and we have a delightful seven-month-old son called Theo. Um, he has, he's just learned to sit up, which, is, which opens a whole new world of fun stuff. Um, but it does mean that he's trying to sit up at awkward moments. So um, I, I was sort of lying down with him on my legs uh, on Thursday, and he rolled off and he bashed his head, and he's got his first bruise. So that was bad. So uh, I've, I've learned to hold on to him at all times now, as he's a bit of a wriggler. Uh, I'm, I'm training to be a vicar, um, I'm in Cambridge to study, um, I'm at Ridley Hall, I'm learning uh, essentially how to do Anne's job, um, how to run a church, how to, uh, you know, do all the, the vicary things. things. Um, friends, if I, I might, I, I sense that God was um, saying something during the worship, and in, especially in the word vicar. I feel like God is calling someone tonight to um, discern, to think about whether God is calling you to be a vicar. And quite specifically, someone who, when you were maybe in years 5 and 6, 10 and 11 at school, and a vicar came into school, and you were like, man, that would be a fun job. And it's just kind of stuck with you all the time. I just want to put that out there. Um, God is calling everybody to something. God calls everybody to Jesus first and foremost. God calls everybody uh, to something more specific. And he might be calling you to do Anne's job and my job in the future. Um, So do have a think about that. Um, but on with the actual show, as it were. We're back in the book of John tonight. We're in our Encounters with Jesus season. Um, Guys, can I let you into a little secret? Good, phew. I'm glad someone uh, was uh, there. uh, I'm just going to tell Elaine this, actually. You don't have to be here on a Sunday evening listening to me or anyone else standing up with the uh, Brittany microphone, to encounter Jesus. You can encounter Jesus wherever you are, with friends, in a coffee shop, while you're punting up the backs, while you are studying in the library hard for exams, when you've just woken up in the morning. You can encounter Jesus wherever you are. And one of the best ways to encounter Jesus is by reading the Bible. It tells us the story of Jesus. Jesus. The whole Bible points to Jesus. The whole point of the Bible is Jesus. He's the one spoken about in Genesis 3 who will crush the head of the snake. And he's the one who sits on the throne at the end of the Bible. The whole Bible points to him. He is there in the holiness laws of Leviticus, if you've ever read those and in the genealogies of numbers, if you've ever read those, and in the poetry of the Psalms that was so wonderfully read to us by Sarah earlier, and in the narratives of the Gospels that we're going to look at in a moment, and in the words of the epistles, some of the letters sent to the early church, and in the vision of Revelation. But sometimes it can feel like it's like this book. Uh, this is a book given to me by uh, a friend of mine for my birthday. Um, it's the uh, Jesus version of Where's Wally? Where's um, and I don't know if you have ever read the Bible. If you, friends, if you don't have a Bible, there are loads on the bookshelf at the back. Um, hosting team, can you start handing uh, some out for those who want them? If you don't own one, take it home with you. Because we've got loads here, and it's good for you to own one. So if you don't have one, if you're new to this church thing, take it home with you, read it. Um, uh, but I want to give you uh, a few pointers so that it's not like you're flipping open a finding jesus where's wally and you're pointing and you're going oh no he's not there 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 there are some strategies some ways of finding jesus a bit easier and the first one of those is to pray god meets us in prayer god meets us in his word so both of them are going to come together and it can be a really simple prayer like jesus help me see you in the bible Help me meet you. Help me to understand what you're saying through these words. Amen. As simple as that. Secondly, There are about a million resources for helping you understand what's going on in the Bible. There's this great website called the Bible Project run by the Bible Society. Interestingly enough, they like helping people get into the Bible. Uh, They have a really short introduction, an, uh, an introduction to what sort of literature you're reading, some of the key things to look out for. It's really, really good stuff. And there's an animated video as well that tells you what goes on in each book, gives you a summary so you get to understand the whole sweep of the book. Like Some of these books in the Bible are really long, and so it's nice to be able to know where the overall arc is going at the beginning. Uh, And finally, there are a bunch of questions that you can ask of the bit of the Bible that you are reading that help you understand what's going on in the Bible. And we looked at some of those last week. Can we have the slide, Katie, if that's alright? And we're going to do the same again. These are really, really good questions to help us dig into what is going on in the Bible. Because this wasn't written yesterday. It's not written to 21st century Cambridge. It's written to a bunch of people 2,000 years ago in a very specific place, in a very specific time. But it still speaks to our lives today. But we need to dig behind what's going on to understand. And these are great questions to help us think about that. 2,000 years ago, They were still people with the same wants and needs, uh, with the same loves and hates. We just have Twitter to help us do it faster and caffeine to help us do it for longer. These questions will help us dig behind what's going on in the Bible, in the stories of Jesus, and in the story we're going to look at this evening so that we can understand a bit more what God is saying to us. So... Let's jump on in, into the passage. If you've got one of these red books, please turn with me to John chapter 4, and we're starting at verse 46. It's on page 1067. Um, Otherwise, tap, flick, twizzle, or bop it your way to the digital version you've got with you. I thought of that joke while sitting down earlier, and I was really pleased with it, but it didn't get the laugh that I was expecting. Wonderful. John 4, verse 46. Um, It's right in the bottom right-hand corner if you're in one of these red ones. Once more he, that's Jesus, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replies, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his words and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, At one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Great. That's just a little Anglican thing we do. uh, And it's just kind of recognizes that God wrote it. Um, uh, There's nothing special about it, and you don't get any extra points if you know it. Um, uh, Wonderful. I'm so excited to be able to open up John to you. John is my absolute favorite book in the Bible. If you read through the book of John, it feels like John knew that he was writing Scripture. He's really intentional trying to drive across a point. If you read the opening chapter of the book of John... Uh, You you get all this imagery about light and dark, and then John records these seven miracles, these seven signs that we're working our way through, and he also has seven I am sayings of Jesus. He has a whole bunch of really intentional stuff he's doing. John is trying to point something out about Jesus to us. He wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God, so that we will believe in him. So that's where we're going today. I want to help you see that Jesus is the Son of God so that you may believe in him. That's my conclusion at the beginning so you can work out whether I've been effective in my argument. John, in this passage, starts out by introducing us to this first miracle. John is intentionally calling to mind in his reader's in the mind of his reader, in the mind's eye of his readers, that's the uh, bunch of words that I wanted to use. In the mind's eye of his readers, this first miracle, so they've got in their head all the stuff about the first miracle. And if you hear last week, James was talking about the lavish overflow of God. This story involves Jesus turning uh, twelve thousand pints of water into wine, a lavish overflow. In and he used these sacred vessels that were important for religious cleansing ceremonies. And he did something that would have been considered profane in these things. John is calling to mind all that stuff before he tells us about this miracle. John is intentional with what he is doing. If you read John and there is a little fact or snippet or extra piece of information, he has intentionally put it in there. And we see that in the man who he talks about, there was a certain royal official, we're in verse 46, there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. This royal official would have worked for a chap called Herod Antipas. Now Herod Antipas was the son of King Herod. He's the one who killed all the under two-year-old boys when Jesus was born, if you remember the Christmas story. So his dad's a pretty mean piece of work. Herod Antipas isn't much better either. Herod Antipas ordered the imprisonment and then the beheading of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, because John the Baptist says, it's probably not a good idea to marry your brother's wife. You know, that's fair criticism, probably. But Herod Antipas uh, didn't like that, uh, imprisoned him, chopped his head off, because his new wife demanded that that happened. And finally, Herod had built his palace on an ancient Jewish burial site. So not only has he killed all the under two-year-old Jewish boys in the past, not only has he beheaded John the Baptist, who was quite an important figure at that time, if you were Jewish, he's also desecrated this important piece of land to the Jewish faith. And so this man who works for Herod comes to Jesus. It's not like Herod came to Jesus, but it's like his chief of staff. You know, it's like uh, Donald Trump's chief of staff coming to the UK. We'd still tell him he's a bit of an idiot because of his boss, wouldn't we? We'd still say, come on, sort it out. We're probably going to ignore him, hopefully. It's like that. It's like the chief of staff coming. He comes with all the stuff that is associated to Herod. That disdain, that dislike that sense of uncleanliness that comes from living and working in an ancient Jewish burial site. And so these crowds that are gathered, and the hearers reading the book of John would have had all this in their head, this unclean man who is working for a murderer, the son of a murderer, uh, has come to Jesus. And now he's at Jesus' mercy. You would imagine that they would want him, Jesus to ignore him, Or tell him to go away, get lost, what do I care? You beheaded my cousin. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He listens to him. He hears the pain in his voice. Look in verse 49. "Um, Sir, come down before my child dies. In the Greek, this word is little boy, my little boy. You know, it's the same pain that I felt when Theo bumped his head, like, my little boy, my little boy. Theo wasn't anywhere near close to death, although Rebecca thought he might have been. (laughs) My little boy. He engages with this unclean man. So what does this say about people? Thinking about our first question... What does this tell us about the crowds? They like to draw barriers. Who's in, who's out, who's clean, who's dirty. But we also like to draw barriers, don't we? Who's in, who's out, who's clean, who's dirty. Who deserves God and his blessings and who doesn't. And it might not be as obvious as the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the crowds in first century ancient Near East. But we still do it. We think, but Lord, I've been really good recently and I've been tithing and I put my red envelope in the basket and I've been reading my Bible because Chris told me to and I've been pleasant to my sister and I haven't dropped my son recently and everything. (laughs) Why isn't my life easy? Why didn't I get that promotion or that pay rise or that essay extension or that question I was expecting in my exams? We think, because I have been good, I deserve God more Because I have made myself clean and do the right things, I deserve the goodness of God more. And the end of that sentence is, I deserve God more than those who aren't clean, who haven't done enough. And you see, Jesus demonstrates to the crowd that the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is open to all. It's open to the royal official, working for the corrupt king who kills those who criticize him who desecrate ancient burial grounds and whose father wipes out an entire generation of boys. What does this say about God? It says that he is merciful and kind. It says that he is flinging wide the gates of heaven and calling out into the streets for all all to come in, those who think they deserve it and those who think they don't. Last week, the kingdom of God breaks into a party with more wine than you could imagine. This week, the kingdom of God breaks in when a little boy of a royal official is healed from many, many miles away. The kingdom of God breaks in in the healings and the walking on water and the feeding of the 5,000 and the raising of the dead that we're going to be reading about over the next few weeks. The kingdom of God breaks in when Jesus reveals his glory. And he doesn't care to whom he reveals his glory. He isn't bothered by social grouping or CV, or size of bank account, or qualifications, or eloquence, or addiction, or uh, Bible knowledge, or frequency of prayer, or attendance at church, or where you sit, or whether you put your hands up where you sing. He's bothered about revealing his glory to as many people as possible, so that all who encounter him might come to believe that he is the Son of God. And the funny thing is, Jesus doesn't reveal his glory to the crowd at all. He reveals it first to the servants of the royal official who are about 20, 30 miles away, up in Capernaum, who are there at the man's son's bedside when he is healed. And then Jesus reveals his glory when he's not there to the official when the official meets his servant on the road. You see that uh, in verse 51, while he was still on way his servants met him with the news that his boy was living the servants and the royal official in this unclean place get the glory of god revealed to them and this crowd that have been following jesus around don't see it at all now verse 49 no verse 48 sorry is one of those tricky ones it's one of those tricky ones where it's helpful if you know the Greek. And um, because I'm changed to be a vicar, and that's one of the things you do when you're changed to be a vicar, is you learn Greek. If you've done engineering, it's pretty helpful because you've learned most of the alphabet already. But verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The NIV, this translation here, has helpfully translated uh, you as you people. One of the things about English is, if I'm talking to Elaine, I I say you, and if I'm talking to all of you, I just say you. We don't have a way of saying yous. Uh, Well, we sort of do, but you have to kind of be northern for that, not good in Cambridge. It's like the French, to and vous. but in Greek, handily, they do have that, except they don't have a special word, they just change their verb endings. Uh, it's all very complicated, um, but it kind of makes sense in the end. And so, you have two words here in this uh, verse, verse 48. Uh, see and believe. Idete and pistesete. It's a trickier word uh, than I was expecting there. Idete and pistesete. Like, and it's like the deep South American, you know, you've got you and you is Blake here this evening? I was going to get him to do it. Um, uh, you and y'all. So you could read this verse, verse 48. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will never believe. Y'all. Um, there we go. From English to Greek to American. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there we go. One of the first things you get told at vicar school is never talk about the Greek text in a sermon. But I, it seems, it, it's the only way you can really kind of explain this. So um, I, I've gone for it. The thing, so why, why am I telling you this? Uh, uh, this is a long way to tell this. Jesus isn't talking to the official in verse 48. Even though it says Jesus told him and he might be turned towards him and facing him, he isn't talking to the royal official. He is talking to the crowd. Unless you people, unless you the crowd, see signs and wonders, y'all will never believe. They are following him because they have heard of all the signs and wonders that Jesus has done. He hasn't just done turning water into wine. He's done loads of others. And so he's got this crowd following him. He's got this crowd who are following him everywhere, expecting signs and wonders. They are following him because he is a worker of wonders. Because he is a good entertainment in the na- ancient Near Eastern world because there is no Netflix. He is like the ancient version of Netflix. I need something to keep me entertained. Or they are treating him like the ancient version of Netflix. I need something to keep me entertained. Something that makes my otherwise dull life seem interesting. I need signs and wonders and interesting things to keep my attention. The crowds are not there for Jesus. They're not there to see Jesus as the Son of God, but they're there for cheap entertainment. They don't care about who Jesus claims to be or what he is offering to those who believe in him and follow him. They want a cheap thrill, something to pass the time. They haven't seen what the signs are pointing to, namely the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. They've confused the things they're looking at, the signs. With what they're pointing to, it's like deciding to go to Leeds for the bank holiday weekend. And you set off on Friday afternoon, and you head west across the city at five o'clock, and you get stuck in all the traffic. And then you go up the M11, you finally get onto the A1M, and you get past Grantham, and you see the sign, the big blue sign that says Leeds, and you think, right, I'm here. Pull off onto the hard shoulder and set up camp for the weekend. It's like that. It's not Leeds. It's not even close to Leeds. It's a signpost on the way there. These signs, in the same way as the signs on the motorway tell you which junction to get off and where to go, they point somewhere. The sign is not the destination. These miracles that Jesus performs has never been the destination. They point to him, and yet the crowds get it wrong. They miss the promise of the miracle. They miss Jesus. There's an uh, old Cambridge Don called C.S. Lewis. You might have heard of him. He wrote some other stuff. And he writes in an essay called The Weight of Glory, which if you haven't read it, is just mind-blowing. It's only nine pages long, so in the middle of essay and exam revision, get a copy of it. He says this in The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, crowd is far too easily pleased with cheap entertainment when Jesus and eternal life and salvation and the glory of God is on offer. And we are far too easily pleased as well. We chase after all the same things. We're no different from these uh, uh, Palestinians 2,000 years ago. We chase after cheap entertainment and things that point we get stuck at the sign we chase after feelings and emotions in worship if I don't feel God when I put my hands up then something bad has happened if I haven't felt God in a while we feel dry and distant from God if there hasn't been a word given that I can respond to I feel as if God has overlooked me this weekend And it might not be your experience but it's certainly been mine over the last few years if I haven't felt God, if I haven't had an emotion or experience, I feel like God has forgotten me. It's not just that a holiday at sea is on offer, but eternal life is on offer. If the crowd could just look past the signs, if they could just see, who, see Jesus for who he is. Jesus isn't just the one who turns water into wine, He's not just the one who heals the royal official's son. But he is the one who's the manifest presence of God on earth. The Alpha and the Omega. The First and the last, The Morning and the Evening Star. The glory of God revealed to all who see so that we might believe in him. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, praying on our behalf. Forget about the signs and wonders and look to Jesus. Forget about the Sunday evening feeling and look to Jesus. Forget about Netflix and Amazon Prime and all those other distractions and look to Jesus. How do we do this? In the same way that the royal official did. Take Christ at his word. Verse 50 Go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And what happened in that instant? 20, 30 miles away, the son was healed. In a word, over a distance, Jesus heals this man's son. his little boy who was on the brink of death comes back to life and he believes and his whole family believes. The sign precipitates the faith. Because of the miracle, they all see Jesus' glory revealed. And so take those signs that we experience, those God feelings, those intimate moments in worship and don't just camp out there But let them point you to Jesus. Let them point you to the one who loves you, who knows you. What does this story tell us about God? He is powerful, He is able, He can be trusted. His word is good, and He is faithful to His promises. What does it say about me? I need to trust His promises. Listen to some of the promises that Jesus makes to you. I am with you always. There is nothing that can separate you from my love. If you confess your sin, I will forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. If you humble yourself and seek my face, I will hear you from my throne. The peace of my Father that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind. And those are just a few from the hundreds and hundreds that Jesus makes to you. So as I come into land and the band might want to get up, tonight, friends, look to Jesus. Look past the stuff that is around you, whether it points to God or not. Look to Jesus. Come and worship the one that has the power to heal the official son. Come and worship the one who heals us when we were on the brink of death. Come and worship the one who came to heal us from our sin and shame. Come and worship the one who lived the life we could not live and died the death we deserve to die. Come and worship the one who was raised to life on the third day, defeating death once and for all. Look to Jesus and see him in his glory. Amen.